I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It was very hard, I think, for the general public to get up and up in arms about the lack of diversity on the runway because there was this sort of overarching feeling that models in general were this sort of strange, these strange rarefied, rarefied creatures. So I think, you know, people were not invested in them. It was very hard to get sort of the average non-fashion fan to understand why does it matter? who's on the cover of Vogue? Why does it matter? Who's the lead model, you know, coming down the Prada runway right. when, you know, 99% of the public can't afford Prada anyway. Hi, I'm Kemi Sharia. And I'm Monica Ainley. And you're listening to Fashion No Filter, where we sit down with some of the lead creatives, strategic thinkers, and emerging talent around us to interpret the ins and outs of the fashion industry today. Hello, Fashion No Filterites. We are thrilled and honored to have as our guest today the final guest in this Fashion No Filter miniseries, a true role model to all of us, Robin Given the fashion editor of the Washington Post, who is generally acknowledged to be one of the key voices in fashion journalism today. In 2006, Robin won the Pulitzer Prize for Criticism, the first time the award was given to a fashion writer. The Pulitzer Committee cited Robin's witty, closely observed essays that transform fashion criticism into cultural criticism. I know personally, as someone who has always sought to demonstrate through my work how fashion is a mirror of our greater culture, uh, that this speaks to me on so many levels. So goals, um, according to BOF, Robin's blunt reflections on the industry brought fashion journalism into a whole new realm. So let's just take a step back and talk about how Robin got here. She was born in Detroit, graduated from Princeton in 1986, and followed that with a master's in journalism from the University of Michigan. Robin worked her way up as a reporter, starting at the Detroit Free Press then the San Francisco Chronicle, followed by a brief interlude at Vogue before being employed by the Washington Post. Her work has also appeared in Newsweek, The Daily Beast, Harper's Bazaar, New York Magazine, and The New Yorker. Um, Beyond Robin's fashion beat, she also covered First Lady Michelle Obama during the first year of her administration and has contributed to several books and published one of her own. In an interview about covering the fashion industry, Robin told CBS News, There are a lot of people who just sort of 
say something is good or important or progressive or edgy when in fact it's just crappy. And no one says it's crappy, she added. But I'll also say when I think something is absolutely magnificent. <laughs> so anyway, I know that when we were all first discussing this miniseries and how to approach it, Robin's name came up immediately as a reference point. And we were all basically just thinking what a dream it would be to get her on, especially after reading her June 12th Washington Post article, Fashion Was Broken Even Before the Pandemic, A Reboot Could Be Just What It Needs, in which she highlighted the many challenges fashion faced and the lies that have been purveying the industry for years. I love this chat between Robin and Henrietta as they really get into it why the industry has not been able to get a hand on issues such as diversity and inclusivity. They also talk more about how Robin herself made it to where she is today and what the role is of the press, particularly those um, who report on fashion for mainstream news outlets like the Washington Post, rather than reporting on fashion from within a fashion structure like a fashion magazine, um, because I think it's important to make that difference. So it's all, she talks a lot about what the responsibility is going forward of reporters, um, which Henrietta quite rightly brings up. Guys, any, any thoughts you'd like to share about this upcoming interview? In my personal opinion, you cannot talk about fashion without thinking about Robin Given. Like she is the truest to ever do it. She is sub, she's our industry's truth teller backed up with so much substance and knowledge and just experience. She is a unicorn, I often describe her as. So it was amazing to just understand her point of view and hear her point of view on, on the things that we spoke about. I was slightly dying inside mm. during our conversation. <laughs> and also to get someone who is so impartial and who has such a bird's eye view on the whole industry but the world as well because as a journalist obviously you are really digging deep on every topic and connecting things which I think in fashion sometimes doesn't happen because we're lost in this little bubble of whatever it is beautiful things and you forget that everything is connected absolutely everything and I think she really really made that clear and I I'm so excited that we got to speak to Robin and yeah, I guess time for Pass the Mic. So beyond excited to speak to you. Full transparency, I am a huge fan of your work and your writing um, and just you as a person. So thank you so much for joining Fashion No Filter Pass the Mic. Well, thank you for having me and thank you very much for those kind words. So for the, I'm assuming, handful of people that don't know who you are or know your work, would you mind just introducing yourself and sort of helping us frame the conversation by describing what you do? I'm the fashion editor for the Washington Post. And in that role, I write about the fashion industry in Europe and in the U.S., just sort of in general. But I write a lot about the cultural impact of fashion as well as uh, the business and I hope the joy and pleasure of fashion as well. And I would probably be remiss to say that you are the only fashion critic and fashion journalist who has received the Pulitzer Prize for critique. Just to put it out there. <laughs> 
it wasn't necessarily something I was expecting to say for yourself, but I wanted to say that so that we can really understand that what you do, at least in my opinion, absolutely transcends fashion and fashion critique. Everything you do is really positioned in culture. It's commentary on culture and how we live our lives. And I think that's why I find so much of your writing and your critique so salient. So we're really excited to get your position on this just as a cultural commentator, I think. And so where we'll start the conversation is very much inspired by a piece that you wrote recently called Fashion Was Broken Before the Pandemic. So could you talk to us a little bit about what you meant by that and from your opinion, what that looked like for you, particularly from a racial standpoint? Well, it, you know, it didn't necessarily start uh, from a racial standpoint. It really started um, from a business standpoint. And it, it came out of conversations that I've been having with people in the industry, retailers and uh designers and they were lamenting the state of the industry and frustrated and and really worried about what the path forward might look like. And as I had these conversations, it just seemed like all of the different aspects of the industry from um, sales and marketing and design and just sort of the overall tenor of the industry just seemed to have been this idea that was built on sand, that there was no real foundation to it. And so many of the things that the industry touted as truth were really just lies or myths or fantasies. And the more that I looked at the issues that were really facing the industry, because of the pandemic, I realized that many of those issues, most of those issues already were there. The pandemic exacerbated them uh, and maybe sort of ripped the Band-Aid off of them, but they were always there. And I think that the issue of diversity and inclusivity, you know, were also things that were deeply troubling to the industry that the industry had not been able to really get a get a handle on and the the pandemic and then the ensuing uh protests I think just made that even plainer yeah I actually have a question I actually just thought of within that which is do you think that with the speak of the reset um, needed in fashion and people becoming increasingly frustrated with the fashion system and seeing so many broken structures and things that just aren't strategic, they're not aligned with progressive points of view or the way we live our lives. Do you think that also is what sort of tarnished the industry's reputation and gave it a credibility issue and that almost laid the most fertile ground for this racial fallout that obviously was spurred on by the murder of George Floyd? Yeah, I mean, I think oftentimes people look at the fashion industry as this... um, sort of uh, odd industry out Um, when, in fact, you know, I always try to emphasize that, you know, fashion isn't immune from any of the problems that ail every other industry. And the idea that simply because fashion is an industry that is uh, creative doesn't mean that it's necessarily more progressive or more inclusive or without the same kind of 
systemic racist issues that plague other industries. And I think one of the one of the problems for fashion, as has been the case with other industries, is that I think people are more forgiving of companies that have a track record for trying to do the right thing. And they're willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. Uh, they're willing to, um, a, a company can really make uh, use of its goodwill. And I think one of the problems for the fashion industry was that it hadn't really, it didn't have a store of goodwill. You know, it had been facing a lot of these issues for a very long time. Uh, you know, people had brought them up before. And while there were some companies that did and have tried to address them, overall, the industry just sort of gave a lot of lip service mm-hmm. to dressing and then sort of went back to business as usual. That's exactly true. And I fully agree with that. And so I guess when it comes to the racial fallout in an industry where inertia is almost quite literally the status quo, it's really become the status quo for decades. And I actually preface this, it's been the inertia for decades for really big themes, right? Not just the kind of day-to-day machinations of the industry, but really big themes like sustainability, like you just spoke about the fashion pace and business and the calendar, for instance, but also with the race issue. And everything that we just mentioned has more sort of tangible uh, sort of solutions, right? When you look at sustainability, for instance, when you look at the fashion calendar, when you look at to have fashion week or not to have fashion week, there are really sort of tactical solutions that we could deploy to help solve and mitigate these issues. When it comes to race, it feels very much like a human problem, right? Obviously it's systemic racism, but people make up these systems, the power structure makes up these systems. How confident are you that we could actually reconcile something that feels so insidious, but also so psychological in many ways? Does that make sense? Yeah. How confident am I? I don't know that I'm super confident. How optimistic am I? I am optimistic because I think without optimism, you know, what you don't really have a reason to get up in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) It's challenging. I mean, I think with an issue like sustainability, you know, you can sort of have these sort of measures of your progress. But again, it is, it's an enormous unwieldy issue. And you think you're doing the right thing on the one hand, and then you realize that by, you know, going in one direction, you sort of Upset, upset, um, you know, something else on the, in the other direction. So it's, it's a constant balancing act. And when it comes to, I think, diversity and inclusivity, a lot of the issues that arise in fashion are not things that are, are born out of the fashion industry. I mean, they are things that exist from, you know, the moment that, we enter elementary school, the moment that we start to form our our friend group and our social group. You know, fashion is a small industry and a lot of it is based on relationships. And people tend to reach out to people that they know uh, when they're looking for writers, when they're looking for designers, when they're looking for executives. And if the only people that you know are people who look just like you, 
then you sort of perpetuate that. And so a lot of the changes really have to, I think, come on a really human level and oftentimes outside of the industry. And I think people need to look around at who do they socialize with? Who are they having conversations with on a daily basis? Who's informing them about, you know, trends and cultural shifts? Who's informing how they think about politics and the world around them? I mean, I think all of those things come into play when, you know, as an executive is looking around and making decisions about who they want to invest money in. I definitely agree. I think my challenge with it is that we've seen that those things could play out on an optics level. So diversity, inclusion, representation has been really part of the marketing matrix and the messaging rhetoric for a few years now at the very least. It hasn't really been able to penetrate beyond a campaign, social media, you know, beyond this sort of optics surface level. So we all are aware of what you just spoke about, you know, trying to diversify our circles, who are we looking at as valuable, all of those sorts of things, but it doesn't really to actually work when we talk about equity, or it hasn't, shall I say, seems to have worked when we talk about equity, when we talk about hiring practices. What, why do you think that is? I think you have such a good bird's eye view of the system over a number of years. So why do you think that's happened? Because against a backdrop of diversity, inclusion and equality, which we've been talking about for many years, I think that's also part of why the fallout has been so great, because it's so counter to what fashion looks like externally. Well, I think, you know, if I had to, to guess, I, I would say that some of it is simply that as humans, we tend to take the path of least resistance. And so it's hard to be consistently aware and making conscious decisions about trying to create a diverse environment, trying to make sure that you have as many different voices in in a room as possible and that not only are those voices present, but they feel empowered to speak because they know that in speaking, they'll they'll be met with respect. I mean, I, I think that some of it is pure capitalism that people, there are times I think when people just don't see how it pays off. They don't see how doing that kind of hard work pays off in, you know, bottom line results. And, you know, I think executives who are incentivized to do that extra work tend to be executives who do that kind of work. I think if people know that it matters at the very top of an organization, then the rest of the organization responds. But I also think it takes constant vigilance. I mean, I I think it can be exhausting because, you know, it is a sort of a constant state of, of alertness. But I, but I also think that, you know, it requires work on, on both sides as well. You know, it requires aspiring designers or, you know, business owners, entrepreneurs, retailers, what have you, to also put themselves out there and to take risks and to, to remember that 
fashion is a really daunting, challenging uh, industry for everyone. And, you know, it's more likely that you're going to hear a no than a yes. But to also just be willing to keep hearing the no until you hear a yes. I mean, it's interesting to me that a lot of people recently have talked about, you know, the need to see yourself represented and to see others in a position as, if not validation, at least a a point of encouragement that that position is also possible for you. But, you know, I, I think about all those people who were first or who were second or who didn't have role models and they were still able to feel that they could accomplish something without having someone there who had already done it. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, unfortunately, that kind of bravery and self-assuredness, you know, confidence also has to come into play. Absolutely. But also in, when you're speaking, it kind of makes me think about you and your path, actually, because you kind of do exemplify in many ways that only one allegory, you know, not just as a black journalist or as a female journalist or a fashion journalist. How has that journey been for you? Because you have really kind of been a pioneer and been the first and been the only one in many ways for many years. So how has that journey been you on a sort of more personal and professional level? Well, I, I don't know that I've been the, the first by any means. I mean, there were definitely, you know, people who were my colleagues and predecessors who um, were incredibly supportive and welcoming and, uh, and, and helpful. And, you know, I could run down a whole list of them. Like Andre Leontali certainly was leaps and bounds uh, ahead of me and was incredibly welcoming when, you know, I spent some time at Vogue and, you know, the the newspaper side colleague, uh, Terry Agins, who was at the Wall Street Journal for years, could not be a more generous competitor. I mean, someone who would be literally the first phone call in the morning after a story uh, had run to tell you that it was great. And that's, that's, that's an incredible generosity of, of spirit. But I, I also think that some of it was that I didn't really see myself as someone who was um, going into the fashion industry. I saw myself as someone who was going into the world of journalism. And, you know, and there was certainly, the the world of journalism was certainly quite diverse and inclusive and and all of those things. Um, It could be more so, certainly, but uh, when I I started, it definitely was. But that said, you know, the people who were probably most supportive directly, you know, direct editors that I had were not people of color, but they approached my work and their editing with with great openness and support. And they were the kind of editors who were not afraid to say that they didn't know something 
um, but they were also very confident in their own journalistic news judgment. So I, I think I, when I at, walked into sort of the fashion industry, I was confident about my journalistic skills. And, you know, and to me, fashion was just a matter of reporting. And so I, I think that's a very sort of long meandering way of answering your question. <laughs> but I mean, essentially it was that when I was looking around for support and advice, I was really looking to others in journalism. I wasn't looking to people in fashion. Mm. That's really interesting because whenever I've spoken to people in the industry, you know, Black people, people of colour, it's really interesting that there is that clear distinction between the actual discipline versus the industry. You know, so when you're talking about something a bit more objective or you're talking about a skill set or you're talking about something that could be applied to many different people, it feels very much outside of who that person is. It is about the skill. It's about the discipline. It's about what you bring to the table we seem to be talking about more inclusive circles versus when you start talking about optics and relationships and who's seen where with what and whom and does what, why. That's when we seem to sort of find ourselves in these larger systemic problems. Would you say that is true or similar to what you're sort of speaking about also? I mean, I, I think it probably looks like that from the outside. <laughs> I mean, I, I think, you know, the in, in journalism, Unfortunately, it's it's a world that's gotten smaller and smaller for sure. And I won't say that everyone knows everyone, but there is a real sense of familiarity with people's work, with um, what they're like to work with. You know, bad reputations can certainly precede you by miles. And, and so it does, there is a sense that um, a lot of it is, you know, built on relationships. But I do think that when you compare journalism to fashion, to me, it, it does feel like the, the entry points are bigger and more supportive. You know, it's not the case in, in broadcasting, but certainly you know, with newspapers, as far as I know, you know, the vast majority, for instance, of newspaper internships are paid internships. And that's uh, an enormous thing to offer someone who is in, in college or recently graduated from college. Because, you know, we've all heard the stories of how challenging it is to uh, be an intern at a fashion magazine or in a design house where you may not be paid or you may be paid so little that you have to have, you know, two other jobs in order to pay your you know, share of the rent right. as expensive as you are. I think you you start out with a bit more of a financial foundation through journalism internships, and um, you know, and certainly at the post. I mean, I know of many many colleagues who started as interns and you know went on to get full time jobs and become incredible award winning journalists. Um, I don't know if the the road is as clear in fashion. In, in design, perhaps, um, but I think there are so many other positions within the fashion industry where the road to sort of getting to them is so circuitous and so personal to each 
individual and so murky. Mm -hmm. A lot of times you have um, students who want to be a fashion photographer or they want to be a stylist or they want to, you know, open their own business. And there's no really clearly defined route to getting there. And they kind of, and that's when the idea of, oh, well, who do you know who can guide you along the way or take you under their wing um, becomes more important. It's funny because everything feels very cyclical because to that earlier point of inertia and that being the status quo in the industry and then this industry's almost unanimous pledge of proactively dismantling systemic racism. What are you seeing the role of journalism and what you do and your peers in holding the industry accountable or not? Do you think that your role is simply to document what's happening as it's happening? I think by documenting what's happening, you are in fact holding the industry accountable. I I don't know any industry that's particularly good at policing itself. I think every industry needs outside observers to to shine a lot a light on you know its dark spots, and I, I also think you know it's it's interesting to me that for a lot of industries where there has been substantive change, a lot of the pressure for those changes came from outside of the industry, whether or not it was you know governmental pushes to to change or it was outside agitators pushing for change um, but it, it it typically is this sense that the industry is important enough and influential enough and people have enough of a vested interest in it that they want it to change and they push it to do so I mean, I think about the film industry, and certainly there have been actors within the industry. I, I don't mean like actors, actors, but people who are actually sort of agitating for change, who have pushed the industry to do better. But when I think about you know, sort of the hashtag Oscars so white mm-hmm. art, this sort of broader focus on the industry you know, that came from outside. I think about, you know, like the NAACP would, off, would regularly sort of publish a report about the diversity of the film industry and the television industry. And, you know, and again, that was an outside observer holding an industry to task. Part of fashion's magic is that it has created this whole mythology around itself you know, it has created this sense that it's this verified special universe that, you know, you have to sort of crawl in over a giant wall in order to get into. And so in that way, I think the general public often feels like it doesn't have a vested interest. It feels very estranged from the industry. And in some ways, it seems like that's been one of the things that has allowed these issues to to fester in the fashion industry. I would definitely agree with you in terms of the public participation. And I think that fashion definitely has had and is having many optics challenges, you know, everything from that kind of 
Devil Wears Prada, Zoolander type mentality of it being superfluous and not to be taken seriously, right through to, you know, the idea that it's just a bunch of mean girls. Uh, well, I mean, I, I sorry, I just to say, I think about, for instance, when, you know, the models who were on the runway and in editorials were overwhelmingly white. It was very hard, I think, for the general public to get up and up in arms about the lack of diversity on the runway because there was this sort of overarching feeling that models in general were this sort of strange, these strange, rarefied, rarefied creatures. So I think, you know, people were not invested in them. It was very hard to get sort of the average non-fashion fan to understand why does it matter? who's on the cover of Vogue? Why does it matter? Who's the lead model, you know, coming down the Prada runway right. when, you know, 99% of the public can't afford Prada anyway? Right. Yes. That's absolutely true. And to that point, I definitely think that fashion has these optics problems where people aren't making that direct connection to what our industry does to contribute to culture and uh, how both of them are, are really linked. But I guess. So going back to your point about journalism holding the industry accountable, and, and this isn't an indictment by any means, but it very much feels like we're talking about this more so on social media and press is sort of following suit. But before the sort of racial fallout, press wasn't really documenting what was happening in that same way, despite the fact that a lot of journalists and, you know, we all, we all knew the makeup of fashion and what happens behind the scenes. So I'm just trying to sort of reconcile that point about the documentation versus holding the industry accountable. Could you talk a bit more about that? Can you give me an example of what you mean? Are you talking about a specific story or? Um, no, I'm just talking about just the general wave of press. So right now we're talking about everything. So a good example would be, let's say the CFDA awards, right? It's like the same people that keep getting nominated. And there's a point of view that it's, it's not as racially diverse as it should be, particularly in this moment. But given that's the way that the awards have been set up and a lot of fashion awards have been set up, the indictment of, yes, this is the status quo in this time is obviously you know, arguably the right one. But no one was really talking about that beforehand from a press standpoint. So that's what I'm talking about, the sort of documentation versus holding accountable. I'm just trying to reconcile how that works because because I, I guess press know what the industry looks like inside, you know, from a public standpoint, because of the marketing and the rhetoric around inclusion and diversity and the way that we use inclusion as an optics tool, the public aren't really aware necessarily of what is happening behind the scenes in a way that press have a very different vantage point to hold the industry accountable. So I'm sort of trying to dig a little bit deeper to your point about documentation and that being a means to hold the industry accountable, why that wasn't so much the case before this racial fallout, if that is the case in fact. Some of it is, you know, I think the the, the battle of, of, of resources, you know, unfortunately, there simply aren't that many newspapers that have someone focused on covering the fashion industry. The other thing I would say is that, I mean, I know that in, in the past, you know, covering the CFDA awards 
written about the sensation of it being sort of Groundhog Day and um, you know, the oftentimes very curious choices of people that the industry decides to, to honor. But I would also say that, you know, I draw a distinction between journalism, which is, you know, covering an industry as fairly as, as one can and reporting on what is unfolding or reporting on, um, you know, the issues that are facing an industry and, you know, making those connections between other aspects of the culture, trying to write those stories in a way that is as welcoming as possible to people who may not immediately feel like they have um, a stake in, in the industry or in the story. But I think that is different from being an activist. And I, I think that oftentimes, um, you know, with social media, the stance is more about activism than it is about journalism. Right, that's so true. And, you know, I, and I applaud the activists. You know, I, I, they, are, they are very necessary, but um, I think that they are engaged in something that's, that's different from the journalism. And, you know, smarter people than I am could argue that, you know, there are some places where those two things have to collide, where they, where they should um, sort of walk arm in arm and others would say that they should always be be separate because if they are merged, they are each is inherently weaker. You know, I, I tend to think that, you know, each is stronger doing adhering to its goals and it, the you know and its foundation, but that you need both of them. It's interesting because journalism, I think, is such an integral part of our industry and providing information and fact and critical thought, accountability and knowledge and all of that good stuff. But with the rise of social media, we tend to be getting our information from these more immediate subjective sources. And so I'm really curious to, to know what you think about call out culture or even cancel culture, which is pretty much where we are now, particularly in this racial fallout. And I'm curious as a journalist, what your thoughts are on that? My, my general, you know, I mean, the, the, the names of these actions, call out culture and cancel culture, <laughs> I don't know who uh, coined those terms. My, my feeling tends to be one of why are you doing it? You know, what is, what is the motivation? Certainly, there are egregious acts that people have committed that you could make a very strong argument that, you know, they should not be allowed to continue doing what they were doing. Uh, and, they and they should not be welcomed back into the fold. But then there are other cases where, you know, I, I, it does feel like people are using a, a cannon when maybe a BB gun <laughs> would suffice. That's so brilliant. I'm actually I'm stealing that. 
stealing that. That's brilliant. That is brilliant. And I definitely can agree more. That's so good. <laughs> you know, I, I think that we all make mistakes and we are all flawed and there has to be room for, for mistakes and for learning from those mistakes and from starting over. So it often seems that, you know, what's considered cancel culture is done more out of a kind of mob mentality and vengeance than it is really an attempt to improve an industry, to help an industry move forward. And, you know, and, and call out culture, you know, I, I, I think, yes, it's important to raise issues, but are you raising an issue or are you just trying to catch someone with their pants down? Are you trying to bring something to the fore in a thoughtful way and, you know, and express why it matters? Or did you just catch someone screwing up on their worst day? Because I think you could probably categorize cancel culture and call out culture because it predominantly lives on social media. And just by virtue of that, there is a reductive element to it just because, you know, that's not how you engage with social media. It's not a place for long form, critical thought pieces that, you know, you're meant to sit with and really labor over the multiple points that have been presented to you. So what do you think the role of journalism is within call out and cancel culture? Because that's where it's really substantiated information. It's really where someone has a more objective point of view because their point isn't to catch someone their pants down or to annihilate someone or humiliate someone. The point is really to disseminate the truth. So where do you see that sort of playing into it? Because I guess to my CFDA point, and, and it's not really about the CFDA, it's just the most recent example that I could think of, that being a piece versus not being a piece, I think really did hinge on call out culture because it was called out on social media and therefore it was written about and therefore it was substantiated with a number of articles about it. So how do you see that relationship working or journalists role within call out and council culture? Well, I mean, I, I would add that, you know, one of the, the great things about social media is that it has given, you know, an enormous amplification to voices that otherwise might have gone unheard, right? I mean, it's allowed people who would not normally be able to, you know, bring what have been really substantial, some substantial issues to light if they didn't have, you know, Twitter or Instagram. But, you know, that said, I think that, you know, it falls to journalism, as you said, to, um, to do the deeper dive, to get at the nuance, to ask the how and the why. If you know social media has given everyone the what, then you know journalism has to sort of get behind that and get the rest of the story. And I would say not just get the backstory, but also try to understand, okay, you know what's what's going to happen going forward. You know, an example, I think, was when Gucci was uh, called to task for the sort of half balaclava sweater that people saw as uh, racist, as blackface. You know, I think that was 
an example of social media really pulling something into the spotlight. And the journalism then was, which I like to think that I engaged in, uh, was to then talk to Gucci about, well, how did this happen? And you know, what are the steps that you're gonna take to make sure this doesn't happen again? What have you learned from this? You know, what has this particular product as well as the reaction to it and, you know, the, the hurt that it caused? How has that affected this company and what is this company going to do? And, and I do think that they were a good example of a, a company that certainly paid attention and also put in some work to try and figure out what it needed to do going forward, not just to you know, apologize to customers, but to actually say, this taught us something about the culture of our company. And it also you know, provided you know, uh, an impetus, uh, a pivot point for us to try and move forward. We'll see how successful they are, but um, I mean, I do think that was, and, and I think, you know, Prada as well, uh, with the strange Gollywog-like charms, mm-hmm. you know, it was social media that, that put it out there. It was the journalism that gave you the full story of what it was and how it happened and what the next steps might be. I have thoughts about that. I don't necessarily know that it's for this conversation, but I definitely have thoughts because I can't share a few of them. <laughs> Sorry? I said share a few of your thoughts. To be fully transparent, I think that is largely what makes me feel a bit nervous about where we're going as an industry because it seems like the lack of proactive solutions seems to just you know, we, we're in an industry of aesthetics and I worry that that is always going to lead and that it becomes an optics fight and less of a systemic fight. Because I think we've seen over the last couple of weeks, people really are going back to normal. And I think that there are other challenges that we're looking at in the industry. And so that lack of proactive work is kind of making me a little bit nervous because I think a lot of people actually have really forgotten about Gucci and Prada and and those slip-ups. And as far as I can tell, they haven't really been communicating outwardly in terms of what steps they have been taking, how their company does look different, how their structures are changing. And even in reaction to the racial fallout that's happened after George Floyd, I think both of them maybe posted a black square and then that we didn't really, you know, so it just all feels a little bit murky, but I don't also know how we get there if there's not those sort of leadership actions to almost mandate that certain things need to happen, which is why I'm always proponent for equity, because I feel like as soon as we have equity, and that's across the racial lines, that's across the gender spectrum, that is across all human facets, when we have equity across all ranks of the business, we can bring these agendas to the forefront and they can stay at the forefront and not be these things that you're working around optics and, and not always be on the defensive or always be reactionary. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in a word, it's very complicated. And, uh, you know, the people who are sort of trained in this, I greatly admire because I, 
it's such an un, unwieldy issue. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think Gucci and Prada had very um, different responses. I, I'm not going to, you know, pass judgment on on those responses. But, you know, I will say that I think that Gucci has been interesting in that, you know, one of the, the things that recently, you know, changed is pairing the parent company of Gucci added to people of color to its board, which, you know, is significant because in this conversation, there's, there's always the talk about how you know, it's great to have more models of color, more black models on the runway, but um, what about in the C-suite? What about behind the scenes? What about, you know, amongst the people who are really holding the, the reins of power? So I think it is significant that that caring, you know, changed the tenor of its board. Absolutely. But it's also... Uh, a challenge because I don't know how you, ma- you, you measure inclusivity. You know, I think we all know how you sort of measure diversity. You can look around a room and sort of get a sense of how diverse a company is. Um, you know, I recall when, you know, when Edward took over at British Vogue, there was the infamous photograph of the outgoing editor's team and it was this group portrait of all white faces. You know, it was very clear that it was not diverse, but I'm not sure how you measure inclusivity, which is about the culture of the company. And at that point, you know, you're really having to sit down and have a conversation you know, practically with, with each person in a company to get a sense of, you know, do they feel that, that their opinions are heard? and taken seriously? Are their opinions asked for? Do they feel like they are contributing? Um, do they feel like their contributions are, are, are respected? And, and they're compensated well for those, for those contributions. I think inclusivity is, is more, more challenging to measure, but it's also, I think, by far uh, you know, the, the most important aspect of improving the overall tenor culture of a company. I could not agree with you more. And I think that's a lot of what we sort of talk about when we're talking about race now. And I think that's what makes this moment really special in many ways, because we are having those conversations about equity and about treatment. And that's why I sort of liken it to more of a psychological challenge, because it really is not just about having more diverse bodies in these companies it's about how are they being treated how is everyone being heard like you said compensated empowered I think you could largely tell that by the output because I think one of the really great examples that you actually raise as part of this is British Vogue because you know it looked very different before Edward behind the scenes and the output was actually very different and I've I've always been a reader of British Vogue but it always felt more disconnected right there was always this kind of vantage point and lens that was very much from the people that made the magazine and now you can definitely see that there is a real shift because there is inclusion and equity and diversity where they're talking about a plethora of different issues and it looks very different it feels more representative because I think also part of this challenge is it it is quite visceral 
So in a way, I think the output of inclusion and how you can measure that is just you can, you, it feels different, it feels authentic. And there's just a real lack of bullshit, for lack of a better term, <laughs> you know, because I do think that people, consumers, audiences are really, they're really smart and, and we're really attuned to that sort of thing. So that's kind of my challenge. And, and Prada and Gucci were just examples that you had sort of raised before. And, I, and, and so I kind of harped on that. But that's kind of the challenge because there are also companies that are in theory doing the right thing, but it just, it doesn't smell great, you know? And then there are companies that are doing the exact same thing. And you're like, I believe that. So it does become super nuanced and subjective and really challenging in a way that it doesn't just get solved with metrics and hiring practices. And, you know, it really is like a much larger, not just systemic challenge, but it's also a psychological one. It's a human one. It's about how we see and treat people. It's about how we portray people how we project people and culture so it becomes this very layered thing that yes is very difficult but also means that sometimes just saying you're doing the thing and showing that you're doing the thing isn't always a solution either because yes you can have 10 black people in your business but if none of them are empowered and it's a really toxic work environment and actually there are microaggressions happening at numerous times a day the optics of it all doesn't really Anything. So I think that's kind of my struggle. I, I sort of struggled to articulate it with my with my examples before, but it just feels like it's such a complicated challenge, but it's only really addressed when the industry's been pressed on it. It's never ever been a proactive fight when you look at models on the catwalk that was not a proactive fight that was in reaction to something when you look at the racial fallout that's just happened that was very much because the industry was called out and so when you have this push-pull of okay I was called out okay let's do this okay it was called out okay let's do this you know you kind of lose that faith that these things are really going to be as authentic staple in the ongoing agenda. And I think that's really maybe where my slightly dystopian view is coming from. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily just dystopian. I, I think that change comes from, you know, from pressure and from tension and from agitation. It comes with intention. You know, I, I think about, you know, just, you know, going to a, a work, doing a workout and having an instructor talking about if you're completely comfortable, then you're just maintaining the status quo. It's only when you start to feel uncomfortable that you are affecting change. And you have to be very intentional about that because no one, you know, willingly says, hi, please make me uncomfortable. You know, I, I'm a huge fan of, of Edward. And I, I think he, what he's done at British Vogue is spectacular. I mean, I think it's uh, just an incredibly influential magazine. But I also know that he went in with intention. Right. To make it more inclusive, to make it more reflective of contemporary culture. And one of the things that I really admire is that he has done that without losing the joy of fashion you know he has he made a point of saying that you know the fantasy and the aspirational quality of fashion is what draws everyone to it whatever color you might be it's not that 
people, you know, want this sort of democratization of fashion to necessarily mean that it's less glamorous and it's less fanciful. It's simply let me be part of that fantasy. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think that is the energy that we, even just hearing that, I feel so much more energized because that's exactly what it is. It's really, we're all in fashion for the love of, of the craft, for the love of the industry in the ways in which it's creative and fantastical and human. So extending that to all of us, I think is really kind of the point. And I, I like everyone in this series, I could actually talk to you forever. But I think as we think about wrapping up, I would love to know, what did you say? You're not necessarily hopeful, but you're optimistic. So what are you most optimistic in terms of the way that we as an industry are navigating this racial fallout? What are you most optimistic to see? What are the solutions that you're most excited about? What are the solutions that you think are most feasible? What would you like to sort of impart as like a more solutions orientated note? Well, I, I don't know that I have. I wish I had solutions. I think I am optimistic by the really, the, the wide uh, array of people and ideas and initiatives and conversations that have sprung up about the industry's need to be more inclusive and about the industry's need to e expand the, the, its reach. I am optimistic that, you know, the industry that there, that there is a continued need for the kind of joy and pleasure that fashion can provide. I think we all want that. Um, I think we all really need that right now. Absolutely. Uh, and so, so I do feel that the sense of kind of existential angst that the industry so often has about its sort of reasons for being may have... Uh, become a bit more muted. Um, I think, you know, when I, when I talk to designers, there is this really intense recognition that, you know, the creativity of their brand and the joy that the brand can bring is not just theoretical anymore. That, you know, they, they recognize the tremendous number of livelihoods that depend on their ability to keep crafting that dream in a way that's really meaningful for people. And I hope that understanding will make it that much more obvious and urgent that uh, the industry needs to be more inclusive because I, I think that its future health its future financial health depends on it. Absolutely. And that's always one of the leading points that I, I like to make, which is that it's also just good for business. And look at British Vogue. I mean, they're making more money now with this new leadership team. And we've seen just the economic stats and the workplace stats and the mental health stats that just more inclusive environments just yield better results across the board. So I would definitely concur but I just wanted to say a huge thank you. You are such a wonderful, I'm actually going to expand this and say cultural critic. So thank you so much for your time. And 
your words and your career and everything that you do and are you're so wonderful so I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me about this thank you so much it was such a pleasure and um I will have to email you and we can have a conversation about the Kelly initiative <laughs> yes yes we can talk about all of that and what happened and how the system is set up to make all of that stuff work or not I, I actually would be interested to get your take so we'll definitely do that thank okay. you so so much take care bye-bye i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Thank you so much. Henrietta and obviously also Robin for that incredibly insightful chat that went really deep. I wasn't expecting it to get so 360, but I guess that is the most important takeaway from all of this, right? That everything is connected um, and that there is nothing that was invented by fashion. Everything in the industry was born in the real world. And that's something that I think a lot of people tend to forget because fashion is always the dream world, isn't it? And it's not, it's the real world. Yeah, I loved her quote when she said, fashion isn't immune to the problems that affect any other industry. Just because fashion is more creative, it doesn't necessarily mean it's more progressive. That's so true. And laid out like that, you know, it's so honest and it's something we don't necessarily realize. We assume that fashion is going to sort of lead the charge. Why? We can't assume that. Yeah, I think I was very much taken aback by that. It helped me reframe a couple of things because, you know, the projection of fashion is that it's such a progressive industry. That's where you tend to go when you're other and everyone's so accepting and there's this kind of lens of inclusion and, you know, culture and creativity and, and how that all kind of works in the world. So it feels very, the agenda feels very progressive. And then actually you realize that it really does reflect culture in all of its glory, but also in all of its, you know, challenges. So yeah, I, I, I thought that that was real great insight from her, especially as someone who's quite literally seen it all over the past couple of decades. And also her kind of really hitting the nail on the head 
of the reason why the general public finds it so hard to have a vested interest in fashion because it feels totally estranged from the industry and it's just so unrelatable when that example that she used about the models you know they're like why would i give a shit about a model on a runway when like no one in my life or that i've ever met looks like that these alien beautiful women and why would i want to help put this I don't know, plus size black girl on the runway when I don't even know who these girls on the runway are anyway. I think they're too thin. I think they don't eat like. Or buys clothes that expensive, I just want to say, because there's just, yeah. that's the other point is there's just so many people who don't. I've never been to a Prada store. So why do I care how they're marketing themselves? You know, that was, like you said, that was really also put things in perspective about public participation and why uh, our industry sometimes falls short of that. Yeah, and so it can't be this super incredible progressive force if it's excluding 99% of the population. And this is the other thing that fashion also needs to be realistic about because it sees itself, it's almost got these tinted, like rose tinted glasses about itself. You know, it looks in the mirror and it's like, oh, aren't we amazing? Aren't we like progressive? Aren't we open-minded? But no, you're not. 99% of people in the world can't relate to you. So I think that's also something that's so important. And I think with the pandemic also, we've seen that a lot of fashion brands have had to come back down on earth and just be more approachable and grounded in the way that they address their customers. And I think that's so important and I hope it doesn't change. We've seen magazines as well really change and you know choose different kinds of cover stars and all of that. And I just, I just hope that this kind of all comes together and allows for real progress in the next coming years. Um, because obviously we know that progress is slow, but I just really hope that this, is, this has actually touched a nerve. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really hope also that people really pay attention to Robin's work and her role in the industry, because I think when we talk about fashion journalism and critical thought and substantiated opinion and information against a backdrop of call-out culture, social media, everyone's a critic, everyone's a, an opinion leader or a thought leader, I think really understanding the role of journalism and being able to ingest that also I think is really important because when she writes she really writes from a perspective of of knowledge and I think that that sometimes can get lost I I sort of stumbled on my question when I was asking about the role of journalism because I was really interested to know why some things are covered now and, and not before I still kind of have a little bit of that sort of critique but I think for the most part journalism and the role of journalism in terms of how we move forward I think it might be the cornerstone to some sort of path forward. So I, I think that recognizing that role of journalism, I think hopefully people will start reading a lot of her work and informing themselves that way. And the, the last thing that I really wanted to bring up, because this is something that is totally new for me, and it's something that I have um, really had to start looking at properly because I, I'm holding my hands up a little bit here, had kind of no idea that this was a thing. And I feel a bit embarrassed admitting this, but maybe I'm not the only one. But um, Robin talks about the fact that, um, sorry, you, you can never make progress in one direction, often unless you are offsetting something else. And I think it has taken me a really long time to understand that um, sustainability and racial, racial injustice and uh, the impact of COVID-19 in this case are all very deeply linked and that the intersectionality between these topics that seem unrelated is actually huge. 
and that you cannot talk about these things without understanding how they are all intertwined. And this is something that I also um, saw spoken about very strongly in the episode uh, of I May Destroy You, which is a series that everybody is banging on about in the UK. I don't know if it's reached the US yet. Certainly the French people I've spoken to over here haven't watched it yet and everybody should. It's incredible. And in one of the episodes, the main heroine, who is a black writer who has been raped, starts working for a vegan company and there is a very uh, interesting conversation about colonialism and sustainability and racial injustice and it's just i don't think we hear these conversations very often and robin reminded me today when she mentioned that how important it is to realize that when you're fighting one cause you need to make sure deeply that you're not kind of putting to the side a huge chunk of the population by you know, like using the excuse and saying like, you know what, I'm an environmental activist. I'm passionate about wildlife and this and that and the other and not look at the people around you that are going to be uh, disproportionately affected by said climate change and also where climate change comes from in the first place. And I just think that's something that I really hadn't thought about properly and that having conversations really has helped me really um, dig deeper into. I'm so glad that you said that because so everything is connected. And I think when we talk about intersectionality, the reason why it's so important is because we have to remember the structure, like everything's working within the same structures, right? It's usually within these like super colonial, colonial capitalist structures that has really largely built the Western world, created the, what we call uh, developing worlds. And the reason why active participation is needed is because not only do we need equity to be able to solve all of these issues, from sustainability right through to the pay gap, right through to leadership and, and more develop, uh, progressive themes that we talk about. But there is that whole idea of like, well, what's the role of, of white people, let's say, in our industry when we talk about racial fallout? We can't dismantle something that we didn't help to create. And I think that's something that is a really key part in this. When you was, when you were speaking, it, it it sort of when we talk about allyship and performative allyship and and what can we do and what can we um, how can we help? I think we need to look at the concentration of power because ultimately, when that looks the same, when we talk about sustainability, when we talk about capitalism, when we talk about fashion, when we talk about racial injustice, when we talk about police brutality, when we talk about all of these big themes and how they're connected, they're largely connected because of the power structures that upholds them and where the concentration of power lies, right? It usually looks the same. So I think we need to look at that and really look at intersectionality as being like a really real thing. And that's, I think, how we can start to really affect change. And I think that's how we could also understand what the role is of you know, capitalism and of, you know, white people and of the patriarchy, et cetera, et cetera, because it is about everyone dismantling systems, particularly those that it was built to serve and protect. And for anyone who maybe hasn't heard of the term intersectionality or who's not completely familiar with what it means, 
I've been doing a lot of reading about it recently because as I said, it's not something that I've been super familiar with. It's taken me a lot of time to catch on, but I can really recommend reading the work of Elizabeth uh, Yainpierre, which I'm not sure I'm saying it right because I never say proper nouns right being French, but I will link it in the show notes. It is incredibly important to understand the economics of all of this because that is how society is run. And I think that obviously doing your own reading so that you can kind of form your own opinions is very essential to understanding this as well. Obviously don't take our word for it. I think this is something that you also have to kind of get to terms to by doing proper research. And that's what people also mean by do the work. It means go and read about things that you don't really understand and that you're not really sure about because actually probably when you start doing some digging, you're gonna see things in a different way. And yeah, I'm gonna link it in the show notes because it was very helpful to me. And I cannot recommend enough to everyone to watch I May Destroy You. And also, of course, to really read every article that Robin ever writes because her work is instrumental in getting all these important messages across. And she really does the work like no other. She really explores it from every angle. And I think as Monica, and Henrietta have both said, that is so rare in our industry, but even in general, I think we don't have many places right now in the world that really dig deep when they are reporting on a story and coming with the hard facts and connecting all the dots and Robin always does. And that's super, super important. Right, and that obviously involves subscribing to the Washington Post if you wanna read everything she's ever written, which, I wholeheartedly recommend. It is very much worth it. As their slogan reads, democracy dies in darkness and it shines light on so many important issues without being too shove it down your throat partisan. I mean, it's just a brilliant newspaper. So I hope that people will continue to follow Robin's work. But this has been a very interesting um trio of conversations, should we say. I think this conversation series has been illuminating in many ways. It was very freeing and, and, and it felt really good to be able to have these open dialogues on a platform that is fairly sort of unfamiliar to me. And by unfamiliar, I mean, you know, uh, large and I don't know, maybe serving an audience that I don't necessarily get to speak to on a regular basis. So I think just even in thinking and framing, like how would we position certain things? I I went into it thinking that there would be a framing and I actually realized that it is the real talk and it really is our true experiences and our true stories and and true observations that I think is part of the work and in sharing those experiences with people that we wouldn't necessarily speak to, you know, to that point of always talking in echo chambers. I think the audience that, you know, subscribe to my podcast we don't usually get that much pushback or people who have wildly different perspectives or life experiences or views. Yeah, same so, here. Vice versa, exactly. So having this conversation on this platform, I think, has been great. And also working with the two of you, I think, just in being able to exercise that idea of listening and learning and everything we've spoken about on the mic, so to speak, and behind the scenes. You know, I really get that sense of real goodwill in terms of how you guys are going to develop your programming going forward. And, you know, by all means, we keep saying this is just the beginning and just a taste of some of the issues and, and dialogue and things that we're thinking about and things that we want to disseminate to, to your audience. So, yeah, it's been a really good and interesting experience. 
what have you guys thought about it? It's so interesting because I feel like when we started working on this, it really was a long time ago. It feels like a long time ago anyway, because every day feels like a month at the moment. But I'm really thankful that we kind of didn't rush into it and took the time to let everything sit with us. And yeah. we've discussed each topic with our guests before recording. And I really feel that I have learned so much throughout this process and have been forced to confront a lot of things about the way that I have been working in the last few years. And I'm hoping that all these lessons learned, as the phrase goes, are going to help me kind of progress in an interesting way. And I'm, I, I, I really hope that you guys listening out there feel the same way and feel like you've heard these conversations in a different way to that you normally would and that it's been helpful. For sure. And I want to just highlight that we were able to hear those conversations in that different way. Also, especially thanks to Henrietta. And it's been such a such a great journey for lack of a less cheesy term. Um, you know, we are so grateful that you agreed to to do this with us. And I think that obviously the interviews took on a completely different life thanks to your participation. The level of honesty and openness uh, and reflection has just been beyond and, and quality uh, of guests. It's all been beyond our, our wildest dreams. So thank you. It's been a really great experience. And I think that the reason I believe in ongoing dialogue so much is because it's hard to capture really layered and complicated themes in single conversations. You know, you always look back and you're like, oh, we could have talked about that. Or I just remembered this. Or, you know, what about that? When you listen back and think about other things, it really is about ongoing engagement and having you know, complete conversations that keep going on to Tamu's point of repeat. I think the repeat element in any solution or any formula is the integral part because you never get it right the first time. I'm sure that, you know, people are going to listen to each conversation and be like, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And it's like, we literally could talk about this all day. And so as many conversations that you can have, I would implore everyone to do so as many conversations as you can have with as many different people in as many different sectors who have different disciplines and different point of views. Like I cannot advocate for conversation uh, more. And I think that this was just like a small snippet of hopefully how we can sort of move forward as an industry to be able to just foster honest and true dialogue so that we can move forward in a meaningful way. I, mean, I think I speak for both Monica and I when I say it's going to be hard to let you go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> for sure. But it has been an incredibly um, rich experience from every level, from the conversations to the people that we've spoken to and even just working in a different way has just been really challenging and interesting. And as you say, all we can do now is kind of hope that we've hope that we've done justice to the topic and hope that this can encourage everyone out there listening to continue the conversation constantly as many times as you need to which is on a daily basis it's just about keep going yeah pick it up from here we're not saying we've covered everything we're not saying we're done okay you know that's that this is a this is opening a conversation that we would love people to pick up from here 
going, I genuinely think it will lead to action, like really great thought through action. So yeah, I'm excited for you guys. Too. And on that note, our mailbox is always open and I'm sure that lots of people will have things to say, feedback, good, bad, um, whatever this series inspired. I think it's always interesting for us to hear your point of view. And if there's anything that you would like to share or even some experiences or stories, guests that you want to suggest, everything that you want, I think the mailbox is open. It's fashionnofilter at gmail.com. Our DMs are always open. You know how to find us on Instagram. If you don't, I will put our three handles in the show notes. And on that note, it's August, <laughs> even though it feels like April because of COVID-19. And we are going to be taking a little bit of a summer break, not before releasing this, of course. But if we do take a minute to get back to you, fear not, we, we are back in September and we cannot wait to discuss further what everybody thought about this mini series. And uh, we're wishing you all a really happy summer. Bye guys. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.